This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. With just a few days before Christmas, we are asking the question, how important is religion in your life? A new poll by Research Co. finds the number of Canadians who say it's very important is actually going up, well, just a bit, while the number of Americans is dropping. And religion is still less important to us than our U.S. neighbors. 38% of American respondents stated that religion is very important for them personally. 25% of Canadians said the same. There's a generational aspect, especially in the U.S., And then there is the category of spirituality. 66% of Americans consider themselves very or moderately spiritual. In Canada, 53% feel the same way. And that number seems to be increasing, possibly as a replacement for organized religion. So I'd like to hear from our callers. Is religion important to you? Uh, Did you grow up with it? Did you pass it along to your children? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co., and Reverend Michael Corrin, author, contributing columnist for the Toronto Star, and a priest in the Anglican Church of Canada. Thank you, and welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Mario, let us begin with you. So are you surprised that the number of Canadians who say that religion is very important to them, that that's actually rising a little bit? Well, it is certainly different from what we've seen over the past couple of years when we've been tracking this question. And I think the one issue that really surprised me is the drop in the United States. They continue to say that they're more religious, but the numbers are significantly down from 2020. And the gender gap is just astonishing. We continue to see fewer than a quarter of Americans uh, uh, who are aged 18 to 34 saying that religion is very important to them. And it hovers around the 40% mark for anybody who's older. So we have a generational gap in the United States that isn't really present in Canada. The numbers seem to be fairly stable across all generations when it comes to religion. And you, did you mention a gender gap there? No, it's it's mostly age. Uh, okay, particularly yeah. in the U.S. <clears throat> and, and, you know, uh, that age, it's, it's very interesting to me as we bring in Michael, because a lot of us baby boomers or, or almost baby boomers, we grew up with religion, but uh, a lot of us did not pass it along to our children. Uh, Reverend Corin, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, I, I, I didn't grow up with religion, actually. I, I grew up in a pretty secular home. Uh, I was going to say respectful of religion, but I'm not even sure if they were, actually. I think they were quite cynical and a bit suspicious. Uh, I mean, quite clearly, anyone who has any experience of organized religion today, particularly Christianity, but I think it goes beyond Christianity, can see that uh, there's a generational issue. Older people, I mean, it's, it's not always a way that some of the mega churches are attracting younger people. I'm not sure if that's long lasting or not, but um, th- th- this is not unique to. Uh, 2022. We've seen this throughout history. It's, it's cyclical. People, different things will make people more uh, pious, more religious. War, uh, insecurity, fear, uh, often negative emotions. Uh, but th- this is not confined to Canada. I just come back from the UK, and there was a survey released while I was there, very similar to Canadian numbers actually. And when people say they're spiritual, it's quite interesting because. If you say to someone, are you spiritual? They're very worried about saying no, because they think if they say no, they sound boring and not very deep. So they say, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual. And I'm not sure if that's really thought through or not. Because I don't think there's actually much of a difference between 
spiritual and religious. And I, I'm rather, I'm in favor of people confusing those two things because religion is too often thought to be doing one thing in church, for example, on a Sunday, but behaving in another way outside of. And um, plus, we think of the Christian right in the U.S. and to a degree in Canada. So I see all of this actually is quite healthy. There's more of a level playing field. We have to defend our views. Uh, we have to justify our belief system. And uh, that's a good thing. Uh, well, uh, yeah, it's it, to me, this is all fascinating. And when I hear the word spiritual Mario Canseco, it makes me think of uh, whale music and essential oils. Uh, so how did, when you did that survey, did you define spirituality at all? No, we asked them to say whether they would describe themselves that way. And that is where we see more of a gender gap. We have 47% of men in Canada who describe themselves as very or moderately spiritual and 61% of women who feel the same way. So there's definitely more of, an, of a gender gap on that particular question. Where we see the drop, and this is what the Reverend was getting to, uh, which is absolutely true, um, it's about the things that you're supposed to do in nice religion. We have a significant number of Canadians who describe themselves as spiritual or who say that religion is very or moderately important to them. But it drops dramatically when we ask them about church attendance. So there's definitely something there as far as maybe not considering yourself religious if you're not there every Sunday on the pews. Well, uh, that's one thing. And, and of course, it depends what religion you're talking about. Um, Michael Korn, uh, what about the whole issue of culture. So if you are a Jew or a Muslim, uh, the religion is more than a religion. It's a way of life. It's a culture. In in Jewish culture, there are a lot of people who consider themselves to be perfectly good Jews who are atheists. Yeah, that's true. I mean, my father was Jewish, and he didn't work on Yom Kippur, uh, mainly, I think, because other people might see that he was working and say, what was, what was Phil Corrin doing working on Yom Kippur? But I mean, he, th- there was a certain cultural uh, resonance to his life. Clearly, I mean, he, he was raised in the 1930s and 40s in England when the Jewish community had lots of other issues that it had to deal with. And, and so he was very much a product of that. But, and he probably had a, a passive, I think he did have a passive belief in God, but nothing more than that. Uh, you see that increasingly in other religions too. Um, within Islam, if you go to the, to the, the Muslim world, part of the culture um, is to be uh, religious. But that doesn't mean that everyone, and there's a bit of a misunderstanding in the West, many people in the Muslim world don't really regard themselves as particularly religious, but they're very much a Muslim. The same would apply to many in the Hindu world as well. I would even say within Catholicism, um, our four children were raised Catholic, None of them would say now that they were Catholic, really, but I think they might tick the Catholic box, a couple of them perhaps, if they were asked to do so. So, And you see this a great deal in countries uh, such as Spain and Italy and Ireland, where a lot of people have left the Catholic Church, really, and they don't believe in the teachings, but they would still say they are culturally Catholic. Okay, that's good because the uh, the the Catholics that I know that have rejected it, uh, uh, really rejected it, and they say I'm not Catholic. And I know that some sometimes we have arguments. It's like you know what, uh, you grew up that way, and you should probably own it because, as far as I can see, even if you're not practicing, you're Catholic. Yeah, and and remember, uh, politics and religion whether we like it or not, have a connection. Ireland, for example, when Ireland was struggling for its independence, the Catholic Church was incredibly important. Now, people today in Ireland have, well, not largely, but I'd say a large number of them have rejected Catholicism. There was also the issue of abuse and corruption and so on. But many of them still feel something that it's in them. I mean, their, their family structure and the way they were educated. And so it's not always linear. It's not always black and white one way or the other. We, we, we all have parts of our, our formation left in us, even if we formally reject it. 
Well, yeah, and and uh, I'm Jewish, so when it comes to Jews, it's not just that you don't want anyone to see you working on, on Yom Kippur. <laughs> it's history, it's celebrations, it's music, it's it's a culture. Sure, and, and, and we, we Jewish people, I mean, as you know better, better than I do, it is a religion, but also it's a culture and some would argue a race. And the people have suffered so much for being Jewish. Yeah, um, there's that. And, yeah. Uh, so, yes, there, there, it, it, it is all of these things. Uh, Mario Canseco, your survey seemed to, when it come, comes to defining who says religion is very important, it focused a lot on, you know, regular or weekly church or mosque attendance, and that's only 15% of the population. Yes, it's a significantly low number who say that they're uh, going to these events at least once a week. Uh, the numbers are significantly higher for those who say they never go or those who only go for special events. And this is where you also see a significant gender gap uh, because there's a lot of uh, women in the country who are more likely to go to these events only for a special occasion uh, and, and not necessarily every week. Um, the other issue where we find a little bit of a, of a regional perspective is um, the way people define their religious faith. And the numbers are fairly stable across the entire country with the exception of British Columbia. We have uh, 14% of BC residents who describe themselves as atheists, the highest in the country, and 31% who say that they don't have uh, any religion at all. Every other province is at around 20%. So the numbers in BC are driving down those national averages when it comes to belonging to a specific faith. Sorry, I I didn't catch... Did you say 1-4 or 4-0? One four, one four. One four. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I want to touch on something else. I mean, I'm I'm not sure that in this day and age, actual you know going to church every week is the, is the thing that really defines it for people. But places of worship also provide community. Uh, you know, you community in a very big way. They're generally accepting. You get to know people as you go there quite often. Uh, they also perform a lot of very important uh, social services like feeding the hungry. So, Michael Korn, I mean, is there a substitute for people who have given this type of community up or uh, how would you say? That's a very good question because I, I would, in my experience, that the, the greatest challenge people face today is loneliness and isolation. Uh, even people who may be financially secure, and I deal, deal quite a lot with people who are not financially secure. They might not have a roof over their heads. They might be going through a terrible situation. But even people who are more comfortable, there can be this issue of loneliness and where do you find community? And it's an irony or maybe a paradox that uh, although we have all these tools of communication at our fingertips, often we're very isolated, particularly, again, ironically, in large cities where people feel alone. Families are spread out. Uh, children will go anywhere they can find a job. It could be the other side of the country. It could be to another country. And, I mean, it's interesting that there are people, there are people who are very anti-church, and I wish I could just take them around with me for a little bit because... A lot of what we do is dealing with people who simply can't find help anywhere else. And the sense of community around them, I mean, I'm fully aware that we will uh, have a a lunch or a supper or whatever it is, and a lot of the people there will never actually come to church. We would never ask them about it either. That's not what we do. I know. Uh, But we're there to, you know, we provide a service. But yeah, there are people, you know, I I don't ask members of congregations, "What, what, what do you believe about this or that? It, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were some very, very differing belief systems going on, but they find community um, in a group of people who share and understand and, and love. And that is very difficult to replicate in contemporary North America. Well, it, it is. And, and again, when people go to church or synagogue or mosque more or less regularly, they, uh, you know, they've got a community and it's, interesting to me also that that even now probably people who are new canadians 
are more likely to do that and to to find that community than uh, people who have been here for a number of generations and you know don't believe necessarily. Well, that I mean that's certainly true. And with religions, uh, Islam and Hinduism, and and this historically was the same with with other immigrant groups, Irish Catholic or East European Jews or whatever. That they would live in communities fairly close together uh, for safety, for security, and also for sense of, uh, of fraternity. Um, and so all of this was part of their religious faith. And so new Canadians, but I mean, I, I've seen it. I mean, I've been in Canada 35 years. I've seen the change where a certain uh, group that will emigrate in fairly large numbers will be attending church, for example, and their children, most of them, are no longer at church. They might be there at Christmas and Easter, but because they become assimilated, they become very Canadian, very Anglicized. And so there are many factors involved here. And there was a time in in this country where if you weren't in church on a Sunday, a question would be asked, where were you? Well, I don't think that was very healthy, but that, of course, inflated the numbers. But it didn't mean everybody was at church, followed the teachings of Jesus Christ. It meant that there was an obligation to be there. Okay, well, uh, hence the jokes about the church ladies. Uh, let's take <laughs> yeah. a call from Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Good afternoon. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. Welcome. I actually, the church that I joined years ago changed my life dramatically. I could say it made me the person I am now, but I'm actually trying to be even better. And uh, it is a way of life for me. Uh, and it, it provides you community and, and all of that, I'm assuming. Oh, for sure. And, uh, and our church helps the world, actually. Um, if there's a disaster in the world, uh, within 24 hours, there's supplies um, to that place in the world helping them. And uh, so it's a very, very um, uh, ex- inclusive um, religion and um, church, and it also helps people as much as possible. Like your guest was saying, it's basically Christianity in action. And, and that- Sorry, uh, have you noticed a, a drop-off of numbers in recent years? No, just the opposite. Um, our our ward, we call it ward, it's a chapel that I go to, is um, increasing amazingly. Uh, we might not have um, room to uh, to house the people um, when they come on Sundays. Not This was B.C. before COVID, uh, but now it's a little different. But I get my, um, I get, I get actually two services, um, now online, one from uh, Peterborough, one from Banff. So I'm just in seventh heaven. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you, Barry, for that. Uh, something strange going on here. Okay. Uh, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. We are talking about religion and spirituality and how important it is to you and also how you measure it. Is that measured by going to your place of worship once a week regularly or is it something else? And do you consider yourself spiritual? Uh, I have to say that despite the Canadian numbers, what I find in my own community of friends is that, uh, you know, we, all grew up with religion, but not necessarily everybody has passed it along to their children. And uh, so a lot of the children basically have no religion, are not that interested. And, you know, one of the things that bothers me about that is that if you have absolutely no religion, you cannot comprehend the greatest works of English literature, and uh, even, you know, a lot of the expressions. So I think there definitely is uh, a lot that's lost, even if you don't believe. Uh, who who wants to weigh in on that, Michael? Well, I mean, it was, it's true. Um, I mean, some of the a leading atheist uh, in the English-speaking world is a dear friend of mine, and, and he loves the Book of Common Prayer. He loves the King James Bible, the authorized version. 
these are great works of literature, and you don't have to believe in them to appreciate their beauty. At the time they were written in the, the 16th and early 17th century and, and so on, the people who were, who were writing them. But a knowledge, European and to a large extent North American history, uh, extremely influenced by Christianity. Now, you may not be a Christian, you may be quite anti-Christian, but the point is, if you don't understand that, you can't really grasp the history of, of where you live. So as part of greater knowledge, I think that is very important. Uh, but also, um, I mean, there are people coming from different cultures and different backgrounds, and we can't expect them to be familiar with works that are uh, Western or, or, or mainly European. Uh, one of the ironies, though, of course, Christianity is not European, it's not North American, it's a religion of the Middle East, it's a religion of Central Asia, it's a religion of of, of other regions, and, and uh, it's it's very important and wonderful that cultures are now putting their own spin and their own context on what was too often made, I suppose, white and Anglo-Saxon, which it never really was. Well, it, well it's right, especially if you look at those pre-Raphaelite Jesuses, like they're all blonde-haired and blue-eyed. <laughs> I don't think that, that uh, a, a Jew in the Middle East uh, back in the time of Jesus looked like anything like that. Um, yeah, it's... Um, and, and, you know, as a culture, we are starting to... Uh, not necessarily adopt, but participate. I mean, how many of us, you know, celebrate Diwali, which is not entirely religious, you know, but we are learning about it and it's a thing. So it, we're starting to incorporate these and, you know, um, We've all, there are also major Muslim holidays, ma- major Jewish holidays, all, all these people wishing me uh, happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah, by the way, is a minor holiday, but yeah. uh, uh, it's, it's, people are aware of other cultures, at least here. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, the more, the more we know of other cultures and other groups of people, uh, the, the less that we can dislike or discriminate. And, and, and mutual understanding and empathy it's absolutely vital. And so I applaud all of that. And, and as you say, Jesus was a first century Jewish man, didn't have long hair, may, maybe shoulder length, uh, certainly would have looked Middle Eastern, maybe red hair. I mean, that, that was Phoenician phrase in, in, in Jews of the time. But what he wouldn't have been, because everyone, no one commented on the way he looked. So in other words, he looked typical. So he certainly wouldn't have been blonde and six foot two and with blue eyes. I can guarantee you that's not the way he looked. Uh, yes. Uh, Mario, um, what about in, in the survey, did you find anything about people's attitude to diverse religions? Um, we do see a little bit of it when we've asked about multiculturalism across the country. And the numbers are significantly higher in Canada. I think we've become more welcoming of celebrating different things. You have mayors, you have premiers, you have the prime minister congratulating everybody on every religious holiday. It's not something that we see that often in the United States. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we are connecting with very different uh, types of religions now. I think Latin America provides a very interesting example over the past 40 years with the penetration of evangelical churches, uh, which are gaining ground, particularly in areas such as Brazil, um, because they are incorporating certain things that the population likes. It's not the same religion that was taught to them in the 60s or 70s, and the younger generations are finding that very appealing. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm going to take a call from Jim in Pickering. Hi, Jim. Oh, hi, Libby. Uh, yeah, it's nice to hear Michael Korn on there again. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to him over the years. And, uh, you know, this is kind of a, an interesting topic to me. My parents being Irish Catholic, my dad being born 1904 in Ireland. Wow. Over here in 1930s. Passed away, of course, long. But you know something? You're right. It, it, they instilled it in them and the control. Libby, you know how I felt about certain things and, of course, the graves. And, uh, you know, with the supposedly children, we can't get the records, still not, you know, so it's it's kind of a shame, you know, that they have that. And, uh, you know, rather than guessing at what color Jesus' hair was or how long it was, you know, I consider myself 
uh, identify as a secular idealist. So, in other words, uh, I obey all the laws and respect everything and everybody and any color, any creed. And, you know, if I go out, and what that also means in, in practice, if I go out my front door today, which I will, and I see somebody in need of help, I will help them. And I think that religion is going, getting back to being tribal, and it's very divisive, too. So you can identify as this or that, but whoever made uh, one made the other. Right, so we're arguing, you know, about our gods and and all that, or our truths. But but Libby, I think we just have to be a little more practical. And you know, I don't know. I I just think that uh, we're not we're getting away from that. Okay, Jim, thanks for that. And yes, uh, the church, church, and other religions did a lot of bad things over uh, millennia, really. Uh, and I I think. Uh, probably to some extent coming to grips with that. And that has affected certain people. Let's hear from Joanne in Midland. Hi, Joanne. Oh, hello. My name is yeah, Joanne. And um, <clears throat> I guess you would call me a fallen away Catholic. I, um, as a child, was raised Catholic in a very strong Catholic home. But um, with all of the atrocities committed, by the priests with the uh, sexual abuse and the way that church handled it and the residential school uh, problems. You know, I, I suffer from depression, and I think it goes back to the guilt that is laid upon us as um, children going to confession and all that nonsense. So uh, I'm so disappointed. I'd love to belong to a church, and I can't go into a Catholic church. It makes me sick. I just avoid it. Um, I, I'm going to throw that to Michael. Um, maybe you can find a, a, a different church, a different community that that suits you. And, and thank you for sharing that with us, and happy holidays, Joanne. Uh, Michael, what, what do you say to people like Joanne? Well, you know, obviously, I'm not going to be sectarian here, but yeah. there are many former Roman Catholics in the, in the Anglican Church. Uh, our teachings on uh, sexuality and life and, and women's equality are very different. And I, for me, certainly, and for many others, very liberating. Uh, I can understand how um, there can be a reaction to church. I mean, the, the abuse figures in the Catholic Church are shocking. And yes, it, it is painful to see how limited and how slow the reaction was. So the, the previous, the earlier caller, though, I, I would like, I mean, I wish he was still on the line because I really, with all due respect, I think he, he really seemed to get it backwards there because my experience of religion today is it's less tribal than ever. Um, ecumenical gatherings, going to each other's services, understanding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and by the way, it really does matter what Jesus looked like because for centuries, this Jewish man was portrayed as a North European, and it enabled people to persecute. And the more we understand the reality of this figure, the less that can happen. So it's not trivial. It really matters. When you you depict the Son of God as someone who looks just like you, and you have all the power in the world, and you enslave, and you exploit, and you persecute, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, that is not what Jesus looked like. He looked like someone who may well be denied entry now into the United States or Britain or Canada. That's the sort of thing we should remember when we think about Christmas and the birth of this refugee uh, born to a a teenager living under occupation. These are very important aspects of the Christmas story. Uh, Well, and there's another point that I want to make. I mean, we're over time, uh, but uh, it is that these days around the world, Christians are very persecuted. Uh, they're persecuted in, in Myanmar, North Korea, and I haven't checked recently, but uh, such things are measured by Pew Research. And uh, the last time I checked, actually, they were the most persecuted religion, although there's been a huge rise in anti-Semitism around the world. Uh, I, I'm hoping to end on a much cheerier note than that. <laughs> Mario Canseco, in 20 seconds, uh, what's the good news in your survey? 
The good news is that people are reconnecting with the world. I was expecting a depression in a way. You know, we're coming off COVID, nothing matters. People are worried about the future. The fact that we are coming back as far as our own spirituality and our, and, and our own religion uh, certainly bodes well for the future. Okay, thank you so much, Reverend Michael Corrin and Mario Canseco. Very interesting conversation. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas, Thank everyone. We're, go- we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, Snowmageddon is apparently on the way just in time for Christmas. We will check in on the latest on that big storm. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Last week, we were threatened with a major winter storm that was a bit of a bust. However, meteorologists are telling us that the one that is now predicted for Christmas weekend will be a doozy. People are being urged to change their travel plans and especially to avoid driving in bad conditions. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Doug Gillum, meteorologist at the Weather Network for an update. Hi, Doug. Thanks for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. So what is the latest? Is this storm really going to be this bad? Well, two things I want to hit on. I know it's very tempting after how the last storm played out to just kind of shrug this one off. I just want to highlight the last storm happened, but temperatures were one to two degrees warmer than expected. And that resulted in a bust in terms of snow amounts in in much of the GTA, though some areas did get hit hard, especially up towards Ottawa, Montreal. Um, But that storm was very sensitive to one to two degrees in temperature. This storm uh, is different in that, you know, especially for the GTA, we're not really all that concerned about the amount of snow that will fall. There's two ways to look at this storm. Uh, you can look at your backyard experience, which may not be all that memorable other than the extremely high winds. But when we're talking about this monster storm um, that has you know, likely be a historic storm, we're looking at the big picture. We're at a time of year where so many people will be traveling and the area that will be hit the lightest or the least impact will be the GTA in Toronto. Now, we will still have some pretty significant impacts that we can talk about. But the problem is if you're traveling, there will be widespread blizzard conditions in southern Ontario. I expect many roads will be closed east of Lake Huron, uh, towards Georgian Bay and southern parts of the Niagara region. And if anybody is traveling to the U.S., uh, we're going to have a lot of interstates closed as well. So big picture, it's a monster storm, even if it's not terribly memorable um, at your home. Although if you lose power before Christmas, you'll still probably remember the storm. From oh, years yeah. To come. Oh, yeah. So what is it supposed to be like in the GTA? Uh, and uh, in uh, is generally speaking, uh, Toronto, like the central Toronto is is often spared. Is that going to be the case? Well, in terms of the snow totals, uh, that Toronto will kind of be the low point in all directions around us. What we're looking at is uh, rain developing. So, you know, this storm will start out as rain. Most of the precipitation will be rain um, starting late Thursday, tomorrow, continuing through Thursday night into very early on Friday. Now, during Friday morning, a strong cold front will race across the region. We're going to see the rain change to snow, for the Niagara region, Hamilton, West GTA, probably between 6 and 8 in the morning, um, roughly around 8 o'clock for Toronto, give or take an hour or so, and then east side of the GTA between 8 and 10 in the morning. Uh, the most important question really then is how much precipitation falls behind the cold front? Temperatures are going to plunge from about 3, 4 degrees by early in the day down to around minus 10 by early evening. Now, if we get a break in the precipitation, then it's probably not that big of a deal for area highways. Uh, But all it takes is about two centimeters of snow as temperatures drop below zero to 
to make the roads um, a sheet of ice. Oh. The concern would be if the snow is melting on the roads as temperatures plunge, travel on that will compress. You'll have slush. The slush gets compressed, and then that turns to ice, and then it becomes very difficult to deal with that. So really, really hoping we get a break in the precipitation, but concerned that it will be snowing as the temperature drops through zero. After that, the concern is the winds will be gusting 80 to 100 kilometers per hour in the GTA and 100 to 120 kilometers per hour across the Niagara region that will cause some power outages. And it doesn't take much snow to then cause whiteouts. Now, in the GTA, we're going to have on and off snow showers. There'll be times we won't be doing it. We won't have any snow falling. But right through Christmas Eve, we will have occasional flurries and bursts of snow, bringing most of the GTA to 5 to 10 centimeters by Christmas morning. But again, the concern is not 5 to 10 centimeters. It's the, the whiteouts, the blowing snow. And then if you're traveling, snow amounts increase um, very notably as you head towards the Huron, Georgian Bay, and Southern Niagara. And what's Saturday, Christmas Eve supposed to be like in the GTA? It'll be a windy day, uh, wind gusts 80 kilometers per hour with occasional flurries and bursts of snow, those lake effect bands that'll be most intense near Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. At times, those will extend into parts of the GTA. So it's a day where you'll see some sunshine, and then you could have a whiteout uh, a short distance away or you know, for a brief period of time. So we'll still pick up a few centimeters of on and off snow. But again, the blowing snow, um, the big problem on, on Christmas Eve. Okay. Well, thanks for that. And uh, people, I hope you've taken note. And if you have travel plans that can be changed, maybe it's a good idea to change them. Doug Gillum, thank you so much. Sure. My, my pleasure. Be safe. Enjoy the holiday. Thank you. Same to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. We're taking another break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about biosimilar drugs. This week, the government announced that for Seniors and people on social assistance will be switched to those drugs when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ontario is moving seniors and people on social assistance from original brand name drugs for conditions like inflammatory bowel disease to cheaper biosimilar drugs. What are biosimilars and what are the concerns around the switch? The numbers to call 416-360-0740-1866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Kashif Pirzada, emergency physician and co-founder of Critical Drugs Coalition, and Dean Miller, a pharmacist and president and CEO at Whole Health Pharmacy Partners. Hi, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. Okay. Yeah. For, for, Happy holidays, Libby. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to you. So who wants to first define what is a biosimilar? Don't all jump yeah. at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want me to go first? Sure. Sure. Well, um, you know, I guess in the, in the, in the grand scheme of, of medications out there, it's it's relatively a new phenomenon, but not really all that new because I mean some of these have been around for twenty years, but certainly I think ninety five percent of all new drug research money is going to this to, to these type of drugs, biologics, right? So so they're quite simply you know these these are all sort of they come from a, a living source. It could be human. It could be bacteria. Like uh, like Botox or something like that is is you know comes from bacteria, um, you know. So, but uh, but the commonality around them they're all very very expensive, um, and quite likely if you've ever gone to a pharmacy and presented a prescription for one of these, the pharmacist would probably respond either "What is this?" or "Wow, this is very expensive," and I doubt your drug plan covers it. So so <laughs> I'll I'll now kind of defer to the our position on to maybe uh, expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, the difference is, you know, you take your aspirin, um, you take your blood pressure drugs. These are like small molecules, easy to make in a big factory 
Um, they're almost, if you get a generic aspirin or Bayer aspirin, it's pretty much, it's exactly the same molecule. Um, these, uh, these therapies are proteins. They're grown in, you know, in vats. They're fermented in vats or other systems. They're much more expensive to make. They're large molecules and they're not, um, completely the same. That's why they call them biosimilars. Um, they're not completely the same because, you know, each is slightly manufactured slightly differently and it's much, much more expensive. I've seen, you know, my patients, will sometimes have to try different ones that work differently and different brand names. So you have, in patients who have conditions that need these uh, uh, drugs, they need to go and try out many different ones or they develop resistance to some and need to try others. Okay, now now I'm a little confused. So biologics are this type of drug, and I thought biosimilars were sort of the generic version of biologics. Am I wrong? Well... I think, no, I don't think you're wrong, Libby. Like, you know, because I think many people sort of in the industry have started to describe them as the new generics of biologic, of uh, biologic drugs. However, I mean, um, there is a difference because as, you know, as we've kind of said, you know, these all kind of have a different response. So if, the three of us all took the same drug, our response is going to be quite different uh, to those. So, um, you know, Health Canada used to say that these were not interchangeable. You know, it's only recently where, and I think a study just came out last week, actually, that said, look, we're feeling pretty comfortable that, you know, that these are interchangeable now. And I think a lot of that was driven by some of the, you know, drug plan decisions first in Alberta and B.C., where, you know, they've kind of said, hey, you know what, these are equivalent, and we'll pay for them. And now that's what's happening here in Ontario as well. Okay, so. okay, we need to backtrack again so uh, we get less confused here. So, uh, Dr. Prasada, can you give us some examples of biologics? Okay, so I think an example is, um, let's say, Coke and Mexican Coke, you know. Uh, Mexican Coke, some of my friends swear by it. It's made with, you know, cane sugar. It's made at a different factory, but it's still Coke, right? So you have two drugs that are aimed at the same disease, they're, but they're made by different companies. And there might be very, very slight differences between the two. And the way you respond to them might be slightly different as well because they're very complex and the body is very complex. And the way you react to a large protein versus, you know, just a small thing like aspirin, it could be different. So that's why patients are concerned that, the drugs that they've been taking for 20 years, that are the brand name ones are more expensive, they, it works for them. But when you switch to a biosimilar, even if it's like, you know, um, exa- the same molecule, a very like, similar molecule, there might be slight differences and they may not tolerate it as well. That's the concern. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read off some names of drugs that people might be familiar with from watching U.S. television because they are advertised. So Humira, Remicade, Enbrel, uh, Novo Rapid, I've never heard of, uh, but those are that's, uh, that's insulin. Uh, that's an insulin, yeah. Okay, yeah. and what is what is uh, what is rituxan? Okay, never mind. <laughs> so okay. let's take, take something like Remicade. Um, yeah. People, some people develop a condition called inflammatory bowel disease. It's when a lot of people, body, a lot of people, exactly, a lot of people. You, it's your immune system attacks your bowels and guts. You get fever, you get bloody diarrhea, you lose weight. And these drugs, when they were developed 20 years ago, are almost like a miracle treatment um, that reversed the disease or really held it at bay for a long period. And that was the Remicade and that generation of drugs was the first um, to do that. And now you have a situation where you have generic sized versions like that are similar to Remicade, but not 100% the same. And when you say they're not a hundred percent the same, I mean sometimes even with uh, regular drugs, when they're changed a little bit, uh, say the binder is changed, some people react to that. Is that the kind of thing that would be different? Yeah, like it's, it's, it's analogy is the same. Yeah, like it's um, some people like a certain manufacturer making a certain drug because it helps control their seizures better. Actually, I think you know my pharmacist colleague can probably vouch for that. That people insist that we write on the prescription brand name only um, yeah. for for certain drugs, and it's just you know we're all complicated. We're all complicated beings. Our physiologies are all different, and we respond to certain things in a certain way. Yeah, and I think Libby, it's important to know. I mean, when this 
Athens, which is going to be in the spring, you know, there's going to be uh, nine months where sort of that transition needs to happen. And, you know, as my physician partner says, you know, um, everybody responds a little bit differently. And, and there's going to be people that will respond in not a positive way. So, you know, quite likely in those situations, they'll have to kind of stick with what they originally had. So it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be sort of just, hey, let's just switch everybody. I mean, it's going to take a little while to make that transition. And, you know, hey, there's allergic reactions that happen to these type of meds. And, you know, um, there's there's things that, you know, could happen that would sort of defer you off the path of making the switch and have you, you know, go right back on the same biologic. And that's the big scary thing about this. You don't want to keep switching people you know, on biologics. It's just a little bit more, uh, you know, ripe for for problems. Well, uh, the organization that represents people with inflammatory bowel disease, and by the way, uh, that's up to 300,000 Canadians, Crohn's and Colitis Canada has been fighting the switch for years. That's what they're saying. But uh, the the cost implications are huge because uh, the biologic, original biologic Drugs can cost between ten and twenty-five thousand dollars more per patient per year. I mean, when you're talking about a health system under strain, that's a lot of money. Oh, exactly. And I think you know we've seen what happens. You know, in the last few months, what happens when the system is strained and doesn't have the resources. You know, I think what a reasonable thing would be is if um, you know there are people who don't respond to the biosimilars that the government make it easy for them to access the original, and I hope it's only a small minority. But I think make it reasonable for them to access um, the original uh, brand name drugs if that happens. Right. Well, the the press release from the government said that if there are people who react badly, it'll be decided on a case-by-case basis. And that makes me think of uh, vast bureaucratic bureaucratic processes. Uh, do either of you have a view of how that might be done? And uh, is that going to be turned into some long nightmare for people? Well, I hope it's no different than sort of what we do today. Like, for instance, if a physician writes a prescription and for whatever reason says no substitution or, or you know, uh, you know uh, uh, either a physician preference or a patient preference, you know, it's pretty simple what we do at the pharmacy level. And, and, and you know, the Ontario Drug Benefit Program has, has sort of, you know, done it on the honor system to be able to make that switch. I hope it's no different than that. But, you know, we certainly haven't heard anything about the actual process yet. I mean, this announcement's still pretty new, but hopefully it's no more complicated than that. Well, right now, do do they just put it through? I'm assuming before you fill the prescription, you see if it's going to go through and it goes Well, through. yeah, it's kind of a logistical thing, but there, you know, there's a certain code and stuff we have to put in when, um, you know, say the physician says, hey, you know what, in this case, no substitution, um, you know, and, and you will put it through, but we might have to, you know, put in a code to ensure that you know, payment is is taken care of uh, on the government side. Yeah, this is not, sorry, this is not small. It covers about 5,000 meds. Oh, (laughs) and growing. (laughs) It's getting bigger all the time. I mean, as I said in my opening comments, you know, all the new research is not on traditional solid oral dosage forms. It's all kind of in the biologic and biosimilar space. So, you know, it's, it's, it's here. It's just sort of the the big question of who's going to cover it, right? So the, the flip side of that, though, is, um, you know, in, in my clinic practice, sometimes uh, a lot of leading edge stuff is not covered for a while. We have to fill out forms that are called exceptional access forms. Right. And, and very often for like cutting edge stuff, like, you know, things like ketamine are being used in more, more and more for depression, things like that. It's very often, very often denied. So it has to be a process that which the government will commit to actually supporting these patients who, um, you know, are going to have problems with, with the new biosimilars. But I hope for the vast majority will we'll, uh, uh, we'll hopefully have a positive experience. Well, since 2019, other provinces, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and the Northwest Territories have made the change. Uh, are either of you aware of the extent of problems they had from this, if they had problems? Well, we, we operate pharmacies in, in uh, 
quite a number of those provinces. And, you know, quite truthfully, Libby, there there hasn't really been any, certainly at the pharmacy level, there hasn't really been uh, too many significant issues with, you know, with with the switch and, and the use of biosimilars. So, I mean, that's just from a pharmacy perspective. Um, I can't comment, you know, more clinically, but, but um, you know, we haven't seen much, let's put it that way. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm sure that was one of the factors going into the decision. So what's your bottom line on this, Dr. Perzada? So I think, you know, it, anything that can help the system deal with and increase resources is a good thing, but just support uh, in cases where, you know, patients are, are, are being harmed. And I hope that's a small minority. I think be clear about that support to patients. Mm-hmm. And Dean, what's your take on this? Well, you know, you know, Libby, it's it's here to stay. I mean, every uh, every generic company that I know of um, in in Canada has research happening. Some have never released biosimilar medications in the in the past, but are looking at it now. Right? They see the future, and they see that you know biologics and biosimilars are kind of where it's going to be, so or where the industry is going to fall to. So, you know, they, they're trying to respond to that as quick as possible. So, you know, it's here. We just have to kind of deal with all these these little issues that pop up, the mandatory substitution and, and uh, billing and all that kind of stuff. So a lot and, more to come. And uh, so we know that these drugs are for inflammatory bowel disease and I think diabetes. What are some of the other conditions that... This is um, rheumatoid arthritis. It's a type of arthritis, not the kind that you get from wear and tear in your knees or from old age, but your body attacks your joints um, all over your body. Um, that's, that's a major condition as well. Um, psoriasis, uh, psoriatic arthritis, things that can form plaques on your skin. There's a, many, many conditions where the body just isn't nice to you and you have to take these special protein therapies to calm it down. Mm-hmm. I think add, adding to that, uh, Libby, uh, you know, it's now sort of entered the ophthalmic space. Uh, oncology, uh, you know, impacts a lot of people, you know, uh, all of those areas. So it's pretty broad. Hmm. Oncology as well. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's miraculous therapies, I have to say. Like, um, I have, uh, um, you know, an uncle who lived an extra two years, God bless him, um, with a newly discovered therapy that's a biologic drug like this. So For what kind of cancer? Drug. That was lung cancer. Well, was it an immunotherapy? Are biologics... So is all immunotherapy biologics? I think pretty much, yeah. Oh, I think so. Pretty much, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I just learned something very important. I've been talking about immunotherapy for several years. Not all all chemotherapy is. Right. No, 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 no. Chemotherapy and immunotherapy are different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, very good to know all of this. Uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Kashif Perzada and Dean Miller, and happy holidays to you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, happy holidays. Thank you, Libby. Okay, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.